This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to Earthwise, environment and peace with justice interviews on Plains FM 96.9. We'd like to thank PEDET, the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust, for their support. Welcome to Earthwise, I'm Martin Griffiths. For today's programme, Lois and I will be talking with Jeff Key of Forest and Bird. Civil society around the world is pleading for those in power to understand the urgency of taking meaningful, effective and binding steps to dramatically cut back fossil fuel emissions. Well, all countries, all peoples will be affected if global temperatures rise, well, some say over two degrees, two degrees over pre-industrial levels, but that's a figure chosen by politicians because even today's figure of a one degree rise is causing chaos and suffering in many parts of the world. But this is a good time to be reflecting on some of the likely consequences here in New Zealand if the world's climate cannot be stabilized. So welcome to Earthwise, Jeff Key of Forest and Bird. Hello. Well, Jeff, Dr. Jan Wright is only New Zealand's third parliamentary commissioner for the environment, so it's a fairly new position. What is her role? Jan is an um, independent uh, sort of in the, uh, voice and um, source of analysis on the state of the environment. So what happens is that uh, there's the, um, she answers to parliament. There's, um, she, her, what she, her role is is governed by statute and um, she's sort of not really subject to political interference. Uh, this means that she can provide um, input about the state of the environment, investigate issues, um, take people's complaints, a little bit like an environmental ombudsman. That, that's, I've seen, um, I've looked at the website, she's quite highly qualified, and I'm interested that she's independent from political interference. Does she get enough funding to do the job the way she wants it done? I think so. There's been, certainly the, I know the previous parliamentary commissioner was concerned that they didn't actually get too much funding. Uh, once you get beyond a certain level, you find that the nature of your organisation changes. And, um, and I think the level at which it is now is probably about the level at which the organisation needs to be. But as I said, I don't know for sure whether, you know, it's been, the budget's been cut back or or anything in the last couple of years. Uh, I'd say she's certainly managing to get the work out and she's certainly putting work out that the government feels uncomfortable about. So I think she is showing that independence. How how many staff does she have under her? Oh, I couldn't tell you. Um, uh, My guess would be somewhere between, sort of anywhere between 10 and 30. All right. and they have a, they have some good policy people in there, and they what they'll do is they'll contract in people to do particular projects. They aim to bring in um, writers or researchers with considerable expertise in particular areas and bring them in for specific bits of work. Now her her latest report certainly um, is timely when we're hearing so much about the climate conference in Paris. She's talked about rising sea levels, hasn't she? Yeah, well, this is quite a tricky problem. Uh, the, even if we manage to deal with the you know, emissions that happen in the future, 
there's so much in the atmosphere already, that, and there's so much change locked in already, that we are going to face sea level rise. And it's a difficult thing for the government to, to deal with, because what do you do about the people who have houses in the areas that are ultimately going to be lost? It's, and it's not just a sea level rise issue, it's a, a whole, the whole natural hazards area. And what tends to happen is central government leaves it to uh, local government to deal with, and local government tries to push it back up to central government, uh, because whoever deals with it finds it very, very difficult. Um, certainly, um, Bill English's approach was to um, downplay the report by just saying that the amount of sea level rise is uncertain, and to really try and downplay the issue of sea level rise is a problem. So she's, she's free of political independence for saying what, what needs to be said, but that doesn't mean the politicians will take notice. Exactly. I mean, the, um, but what she does is she puts out information that then others can run with and start to talk about and generate change. And putting, you know, she's not the decision maker. She's someone who puts information out there and, and then it's really down to other people to run with it. Now, we've started mentioning rising sea levels. I've seen a figure 10,000 houses. Yes, I mean, it's over time, and I would be a bit reluctant to try and put a precise date on it there, just because there's so many variables. I mean, I've seen sea level rise figures for the century, which range between um, 30 centimetres and, uh, and many metres. So... It just it, everything depends on what actually happens with um, ice sheet melting. So do, do you know what the current rate of um, rise is? I mean, is it one or two millimetres per year, something like that? It or? would be around that. And yes. I think the but the it, so there's there's sort of two ways we get sea level rise. One is thermal expansion. So uh, as the sea gets warmer, it gets a bit more energetic, and so it expands um, in the same way that. If you heat up a lot of things, like, you know, if you heat up a something that's made of metal, it'll expand. Um, so my wood burner, you know, once I start cranking it up, it, it makes a few creaks and groans because it's, um, it's expanding with the heat. Well, the same thing happens in the ocean. When, um, when the atmosphere warms and the ocean warms with it, then um, it, it gets bigger. And so it has nowhere else to go but up. The other thing that can, and that's quite predictable, you know, if you, if it raises a certain amount of temperature, they can calculate, it's basic physics, they can calculate roughly how big the ocean will get. Um, the more complicated one is sea level rise, is from um, melting ice caps, because that relies on a whole lot of things happening that are a lot less easy to predict. You know, is the other, how much does warmer water under the ice um, at, at the end of glaciers um, cause them to move faster into the ocean and melt um, what is the kind of once you start getting that flow towards the ocean from the um, un, unblocking the dam as it were of um, ice sheets sitting on the ocean then how quickly do those ice fields start to drain into the ocean you know, these sort of questions are completely unknown really and they and that's why there's a lot of work in, in some parts of the Antarctic and Greenland trying to work that out. And that's why there's so much variation in the estimates of what sea level rise could be.
There's also, I believe, a lubricating effect of the melted water underneath the ice sheet, yes. which I believe is... I don't know if that's been investigated. I suppose it is. It is. I mean, people are, people are doing all sorts of things on glaciers at the moment to, to find out what's going on. They're, they're dropping dye into, um, into streams that flow on the surface of glaciers to see then where the... Uh, where those streams flow under the ice. Um, there's a lot of work mapping the surface of glaciers, working at how steep they are, you know, what the thickness of the ice is, looking at flow rates. Um, there's, there's an enormous amount of work happening around the world trying to analyse what's going on on glaciers. Now, now we do know that um, the climate is changing in a unnatural way, we could say, and we should be thinking ahead the implications for New Zealand, aside from people losing houses, and I suppose having to move more upland, there are going to be implications for nature, aren't there? Yeah, well, the first climate refugees in New Zealand are going to be um, some of our wildlife. The, one of the problems is if you get rising sea levels um, and increased storm events, then the coast gets a lot more hammered. And in the past, that may not have been such an issue, but... Um, these days, of course, there's all this human infrastructure right next to the coast. So what happens is that nature, between the kind of high-level high level, high, level, uh, high um, watermark and, um, and human infrastructure, will get increasingly squeezed as sea levels rise and storm surges and so on get bigger. Uh, and that's quite a threat to our sort of coastal native species. But as well as that, as, it, as the climate warms, we're going to see pests and diseases spread south. Uh, so um, you know, Northland is kind of pest central, really, particularly for plants. There's a whole raft of, of pest plants in Northland, which at the moment don't spread so much further south. Um, frost is often a real limiting factor. That once a lot of plants can can handle cooler temperatures, but they can't handle frost. And and you'll know that from plants you grow in the garden that you know the veggies in the garden that some of them get knocked back the first frost there is. Um, a lot of a lot of weeds are like that as well. So you know they can grow very well through the north, but they'll um, they'll only move down south as, as frost retreats. And so one of the things that is likely to happen is less frost as a result of climate change. And and that would mean those um, plant pests particularly are able to spread further south. Now I'm trying to picture what it would look like as the sea levels rise, and I can imagine some houses would have to be abandoned and people would move further inland. But it's going to have an effect on the, the coastal, the nature of the coastal defences, won't it? Well, yes. And I mean, there are some, if we take, I mean, Christchurch is a, it's quite a full-on sort of case to look at, really. I mean, there's a, um, a little thing you can do with someone's created a, a sort of a, a mapping tool that works with Google Maps and you can see like, what different levels of sea level rise would mean. And you know, two degrees warming, that, that point at which government said, OK, this is what we're aiming to get to, still means a loss of much of eastern Christchurch. And four degrees warming, ultimately, and I mean, bearing in mind this could be like a couple of hundred years. I don't want to think that the houses go tomorrow, but um, but over a couple of hundred years we could see um, most of the Christchurch right up to Cathedral Square. So effectively, um, Cathedral Square would be the new coast. Uh, <laughs> now, quite apart from that, 
the, what happens to that land that's now underwater, um, a lot of which would probably, I think, just become marshy. Um, how we respond to that is really important. I mean, one option is just you try and build a wall and um, and hope that that you kind of contain the the land behind that's sort of lower than sea level, a bit like the Netherlands, which is extremely expensive and works in the Netherlands because it's a rich country with, you know, high population density. Um, and then, um, but then the other option is you have some kind of managed retreat and that you have natural coastal defences. And so nature can play a really important role by, you know, so having decent sand dunes, for example, and building further back from the coast creates a buffer zone. So things like storm surges, the, the energy of those waves gets dissipated by hitting the dunes and not getting further on. Um, and we have a similar benefit from nature uh, at the other end of the, the mountainous end of the country, in that um, forest is a really good way of avoiding... Um, harm to, to downstream towns and farms from increased flood events. Uh, you know, the, um, in a way, I mean, and I know it's often a controversial and not comfortable way of thinking about it, but in a way, all that forest is a form of infrastructure. Instead of someone building sort of flood walls and all that sort of human infrastructure, we've got large areas of forest which, which kind of moderate the flows from rivers and reduce erosion and so on. Uh, which is why a lot of our forests were originally protected. Um, you know, the Forest Service protected a lot of forest in New Zealand, not, not for nature conservation reasons, but for soil and water conservation reasons. So all this, so a lot of the land, which is stewardship land in the Department of Conservation, which was once um, you know, protection forest by the, managed by the Forest Service, was actually protected for utilitarian reasons, purely to protect the farms and in towns downstream, and I think that's something as a country we've almost completely forgotten about, but is actually really important as we looking, look to becoming resilient in the face of climate change, that's going to happen irrespective of what we do to cut emissions. You're listening to Earthwise, broadcasting in Christchurch on Plains FM 96.9, in Hamilton on Free FM, and in Waikanae on Coast Access FM. Today's guest is Jeff Key of Forest and Bird. Well, Jeff, I should mention that Forest and Bird has a very interesting website, and that's where we've got some of the information we're able to, to talk about. Um, an interesting remark was made about how in the, um, what was it, 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, some villages were more protected than others because of mangrove. And I think the same thing happened in India. I think there was a stretch on the Indian coast where the, the area where the mangroves were we're much more uh, less affected by the tsunami. Do we have mangroves in New Zealand? We do. Um, they, we have mangroves in the north of New Zealand. The, they, been, they have been spreading southwards, and there seems to be a couple of reasons for that. One is, um, is siltation from creating um, more habitat, and the other one is, um, is warmer temperatures. Uh, well, I mean, it's quite noticeable when you when you travel north in New Zealand. Um, and you move from sort of a little bit south of Auckland right through to Northland. The further north you go, the bigger the mangroves get. Um, there's a really strong trend. You can sort of see the, the point at which mangroves start to occur in harbours and then the point at which they get quite quite substantial. And and they do, they provide, they're really important. They provide a habitat for spawning fish. 
they're um, a really important buffer for um, for storm surges, and um, and they um, and they draw oxygen into the mud because of the way that they have their their roots that sort of stick up into the water and into the air. Um, unfortunately, they're also quite controversial. There is um, a problem that you know some people get a bit fussy about mangroves obscuring their view. You know, they sort of <laughs> they, they they buy a house next to the next to the sea and they have this nice interrupted view of the sea and then of course mangroves start popping up and and they don't quite get the same view that they used to have um so so there is a real issue in northland that in northern sort of well northern new zealand generally around the coast that that you get people trying to to clean up the environment by getting rid of the mangroves which is which is a real pity okay now we, we you're we introduced you, of course, with Forest and Bird. Could you tell us, I know Forest and Bird tries very hard to save some of our species. Some are, are endangered already. Which species do you see most endangered from climate change? Oh, I'd, I'd be hard pressed to say which ones are most endangered. Um, I'd say that a whole raft of our biodiversity is, is definitely endangered by climate change. Um, I wouldn't want to pick which ones are, are more or less, uh, particularly as the the amount of research that's gone in at this stage is, is still pretty early days for, for estimating the impacts of climate change on wildlife. But I can certainly give some examples. Yeah, some examples would be good. I read about the Tuatara, an interesting story. Yes. Um, so as um, the sex ratio of Tuatara is completely dependent on um, the temperature of the eggs in the nest. And... Um, now, you have to remind me, because sometimes I get get mixed up, but effectively the warmer it is, the, the fewer the females, I think, that get born, and you end up with a lot of lonely males, ultimately. Um, and um, and if you've got too many lonely males, then you basically you go extinct. There's no breeding. So, um, and, and I think that for roughly four degrees warming is when Tuatara would be likely to go extinct. Now, the um, people sort of ask, well, in the past, Tuatara withstood all sorts of ranges in climate. You know, there was, um, it's been warmer in the past, it's been colder in the past. You know, what's, what's the problem? And, you know, the last, the last of the dinosaurs. Uh, the problem is that um, in the past, there was a range of habitats across New Zealand where there were Tuatara. And if part of New Zealand got got too cold or too warm, then it didn't really matter because there were other parts where they could still survive. Um, and then so there must have just over time there have been enough places that in the long run they've made it. We've only got three or four places for Tuatara now. But they can't live anywhere where there's pests. And and, this, um, and as a result, um, as we if we lose particular areas because they get too warm, then you know that's really, really critical. We can't; they, they've got nowhere else to go. And this is the one of the big issues with climate change and wildlife and nature in New Zealand is that it's already facing lots and lots of. Most of our wildlife is facing lots of other threats, and, and that's why we've got some of the most. Well, you know, one of the worst records for having threatened species in the world is because there is a you know a range of threats af- affecting them, and what we will find is that climate change accentuates those threats. 
Now, we've, just, sorry, we've just had a, um, a march in Christchurch, of course, big marches all over the country. All over the world, of course. Uh, yeah, and around the world, but from the public um, wanting a sort of response from our New Zealand government. What sort of response is Poor and Bird hoping for? I mean, we've, um, we've set in place a 25-year strategic plan. Um, a big part of that is getting action on climate change. So we're taking a relatively long-term view. Um, in the short run, what we want to see is a robust price on carbon. Um, we would like to see uh, a bold target for emission reductions, and we want to see a plan of how to get there. Um, in fact, the most, possibly the most important thing in all of that at the moment is to see the plan, because the country does not have one at the moment. And if we don't have a plan of where we're going to go and how we're going to get there, well, we're definitely not going to get anywhere. It seems to me that business as usual would lead to over three degree rise, so we have a long way to go to get down to two. Yeah. 1.5. Um, I mean, the, uh, who was the, there was an old, um, there was a, a saint from a long time ago who had a, had a prayer, it was, you know, sort of give me chastity, but not yet. I mean, that's, uh, <laughs> that's that kind of sums up the New Zealand approach. Though, I mean, New Zealand wants, as a country, want, the government wants action on climate change, but it seems to want everybody else to do it. Yeah, isn't it um, true? And seems to have a view that climate change negotiations is a game where you try to do as little as possible and you get the other people to do as much as possible. And, and, and if you succeed in that, you won the game. Yes, um, if only it were a game. <laughs> and, for, and it's a classic, and it's a classic um, um, failure of this kind of negotiation. Because what happens is, um, if everybody tries to play that game, everybody loses and nobody wins. So, and climate change is a cl it's one of the classical game theory problems where it's in everybody's interest that everybody does something, but. But everybody has an incentive to try and get other people to do more and to do less yourself. So, um, and, uh, and the problem is that um, if everybody takes that approach, everybody loses. It's so, shameful that New Zealand isn't showing leadership, actually. Now, you mentioned a 20-year plan, did you say? 25. 25-year plan. Yeah. Is that available on your website? Oh, good question. Um, I'll, I'll let you know, and you can let the subsequent... Um, well, that would be something to talk listen. about. I think we need to be thinking ahead. We do. Mm. And I mean, what, um, and Forest and Bird is looking you know, 25 years ahead across everything. So not just um, uh, climate change, but also looking at uh, you know, pest control, the um, you know, marine reserves and other forms of marine protection, reducing the environmental effects of fishing, um, turning our primary production sector into a champion of nature rather than a threat. I mean, there's, a, there's quite a lot that Forest and Bird wants to get done in those next 25 years. Well, that's wonderful that um, people are taking a long-range view because otherwise I just don't see any hope. So thank you very much for talking to us, Jeff. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And we'll have a good keep in touch with Forest and Bird. Yeah, that would be great. Thank okay. you. Bye. 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 Well, Martin, let's finish by sharing a few thoughts about some recent news items. The British Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, has sounded a cautious note over the UK joining in airstrikes over Syria, calling for a political solution rather than a military one, and these are his words. <clears throat> the experience of Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya has convinced many of our own people that the elite's enthusiasm for endless military interventions has only multiplied the threats to us 
while leaving death and destabilization in their wake. It is the conflict in Syria and the consequences of the Iraq war which have created the conditions for ISIS to thrive and spread its murderous rule. Well, unfortunately, Jeremy Corbyn is not supported by all of his own party, even though he's the leader of it. Another interesting story, Lois, that fits in with today's discussion on climate issues. Did you know that the giant oil company ExxonMobil is being investigated for misleading the public about the impact of climate change for decades? No, I didn't. <laughs> the New York Attorney General has sent a request for emails of financial records to the company. Allegations surfaced last month that the company's own scientists raised concerns about global warming decades ago, and that Exxon has worked to suppress that information, a bit about like tobacco companies. In my own opinion, Exxon has committed a terrible crime, and why are the big polluters not held accountable? Well, maybe someday they will be, because I have just read a report by Kumi Naidu of Greenpeace, in quote, a few weeks ago, the first ever human rights legal action seeking the accountability of the 50 big polluters was launched, filed by Filipino typhoon survivors and several environmental organizations. It demands that the Philippines Human Rights Commission investigate and acknowledge the complicity of 50 investor-owned fossil fuel companies in causing extreme weather events. Yeah, don't we live in interesting times? Uh, time to say goodbye from Earthwise. Invite people to listen again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.